Thank you again all for being here. Um, we do have Christmas Eve service tonight. Um, this is my favorite night of the year as a pastor, so join us. It'll be great. <laughs> I'm very aware this morning that some of you have heard this illustration from me. That's all right. Something amazing happened to me uh, fairly recently in, in my life. Vans now offers their old school and skate high shoes in wide. <laughs> I love Vans, but I have wide feet. And what I have long understood is that Vans doesn't and never will offer wide shoes. So people with, um, we call them Flintstone feet in my family, are out of luck. I wear Vans by sheer determination. I have shoe stretchers. Yes, those still exist. Um, I go through a long and painful break-in period. And eventually, all of my shoes bust out at the ball of my foot. And that's when I have to get new ones. Vance has for a while offered some of their more casual styles in wide, but those weren't the ones that I wanted. But recently, they decided to make their two most iconic shoes available in wide. And even more recently, I found out that you can order customs that way too. So, And so, of course, I ordered my first pair of Vans old schools in wide. I had to order them online because they still make us foot fatties shop on the internet. It was a very happy day for me. I can't explain to you how much my life changed in that moment. But honestly, they came in the mail, and I was excited, and I did my little happy dance around the house and bothered my family, and then they sat in the box for a while. Am I the only one that does this with new shoes? I really hope not. I continued to kick around in the old, worn-out, busted, and in my case, a little too constricted pair for quite a while when there was this beautiful, fresh, perfectly fitting pair right there in the box. See, Paul's been talking to us about this new life that we've inherited in Jesus Christ. How we who are once oppressed by the powers of the world and the devil and the flesh separated from the unsearchable and unsurpassable power of God in our old dead flesh are now resurrected in Jesus and have access to this unfailing power. But the truth is, if we are honest with one another, very often we receive this new life in the same way that at least I receive new shoes sitting in the box, pretty, whole, and well-fitting, continuing to kick around the same old, busted, constricting life that we've always known. So we need to take a moment today and hear Paul tell us to change our shoes, 
and see what that looks like for us in this new relationship with Jesus Christ that we have. Remember, Paul is writing this this letter to a church in Ephesus who is a confused community of believers. They've called on Jesus Christ as their Savior and God and King, but they're still struggling in the way that they live and what it looks like to to actually function as if they believe this. They're continuing to submit to these powers of the world and the devil and the flesh, the ones they should be free from. This is why Paul writes this letter, to help them understand the truth of what they have come to know and the truth of what that means in their life. And here, at the heart of this letter, Paul is telling them, to stop struggling under your old masters and live like you are actually in Christ. Walk in a way that is worthy of what you've been called to, he said in our passage last week. But Paul is very careful in his instruction, I want to be as well, as we shift from the beautiful picture of who God is to what we're called to do. I think we have to be careful because often we respond to these things poorly. See, Paul is careful not to treat this as a return to the law that Jesus has fulfilled, nor as an establishment of some kind of new law. Paul is telling them very directly that this life that they are to live, it flows out of all these things that are now true for them in the power of God and its manifestation in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So to make sure that we don't see his exhortations as a call to more fleshly legalism, and this is what we often do with the law or even with Jesus' commands in our flesh as we turn that into more legalism. This is why he spent three chapters before he gets to the point. He spends three chapters talking about who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus and shows us that all of this comes from there. He makes it absolutely clear that what we do as the church, what you do as a follower of Christ, is based on who God is, what Christ has done for us, and what the Spirit does in us. And he uses all of that as a gateway between us and the instructions that we're going to get through. So make sure you understand what Paul is going to exhort us to is not the law. It is new life. And in chapter 4, he starts that exhortation. He tells us spiritual babies to grow up. And then before he gets into details, he gives us a look today at what I think are the tools and the process for this growth. Last couple of weeks, we looked at some of this walking worthily, but we do this together through grace. And this week, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles. But he calls us to not do that in a particular way. Don't walk like the Gentiles, he says to a group of Gentiles. It's important. 
It's very important that we remember that the Ephesian church was a primarily Gentile church. There was a mix, but the majority were Gentiles, and he tells them, don't walk as the Gentiles. In other books, in churches that had a more, uh, had a larger Jewish population, he leaned into other things. Paul speaks to the tendencies of his audience. This is what Paul does. So he's not saying all those Gentiles are bad. What he's saying is this walking a worthy life thing that you're all supposed to do together is not the way you have been. Whether you're Gentile, whether you're Jewish, whatever your background, it's not the way that your neighbors walk. And we do need to hear this unequivocally, our new life in Christ is a new life. It's not simply intellectual assent. It's not a choice of religious identity. It is a new life. We can wrestle what that looks like specifically, what the details of that new life are. Scripture does give us some details and then lets us walk in the messiness of wisdom everywhere else. But what we can't argue is that walking with Jesus is indistinguishable from walking the way we did before him. Paul directly, and you might argue somewhat unwinsomely, says this. He says, the way of the Gentiles is broken and it's dark. Their understanding is wrong, and their will is wrong. And while the message of the gospel is often given in a winsome way, particularly by Paul, to those who have not yet encountered the grace of Christ, here to this church who is struggling, Paul is direct. The ways of the world and the devil and the flesh that you continue to walk in are the ways of death, they are the way of sin, and you are called to something else. And he speaks to the futility and darkness and ungodliness of the Gentile mindset. Again, not because Gentiles in Ephesus were uniquely sinful, but because apart from God, all of our motivations, all of our plans, all of our hopes and dreams, they are futile, they are broken, and they are deadly. It doesn't matter your background. If you are here this morning and you are not convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be, my intention is not to single you out. Not to make you feel less than or insult you in any way. I apologize if that's what comes across. My own fleshly motivations, my own plans and my own hopes and my own dreams are futile as well. What we believe is that this futility is universal and that the answer to this futility is Jesus Christ. And I am just as much trapped by this as anyone else is. See, apart from Jesus Christ, 
All those things that we feel matter, that we feel will mean something, will change us, will grow us, will be the answer, they fall apart, don't they? I mean, what do we value? Love and relationships? Well, lovers frustrate, they leave, they die. Families drift and they fight and they die. Friends do the same thing. We put a lot of weight there and there's always a disappointment at the end of that story, isn't there? There's always a second half, I always imagine, of the romantic movie or fairy tale. Like what's part two after Cinderella marries Prince Charming? What does it look like? You know, and they realize maybe they're not as compatible as they thought they were based on one date. Anyway. But it's not just love, right? Accomplishment and success, all those things that we do, right? All the things that we work for, they get undone, they get forgotten. We build up these careers and these lives and we reach the pinnacle of it. And even if we fight to retire and stay on as long as we can, then someone else comes up and it's theirs and it's not ours anymore and it's all gone and it crumbles before us. Pleasure, fun fades, happiness is often met by sadness, the dopamine hits and then it leaves. This is life. Merry Christmas. (laughs) And maybe it's because of that futility. That our will apart from God is callous and dark. Callousness here, um, the word, it speaks of a lacking of understanding or concern for what is right. It's a very clear, I don't know and I don't care kind of an attitude. The futility leads us there, doesn't it? Paul talks about sensuality, and what I want to say here is that word is not a strictly sexual term. We like to use it here to push particularly sexual morality. We're going to get there in Ephesians. That's really not what's being talked about here. What Paul is talking about is a lack of self-control or a self-abandonment. He speaks of slavery entirely to the world, the devil, and the flesh, letting it control us in what we do. In the futility of this world, We become callous, I don't care, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't really care. And we become slaves to these impulses. And in case you can't tell that it's problematic to Paul, if you feel like the doctrine of grace is unconcerned about God's people living like this, he tells us directly to stop. In fact, he tells us you know better Verses 20 and 21, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. As if what they're doing goes against everything they've been taught. As if even this struggling young church knows enough 
about what it means to follow Jesus, they shouldn't, he shouldn't even have to say this to them. That's why knowledge is important. Why ignorance of the work and will of God is something that we should work against. It's a part of preaching and teaching and study. But it goes beyond knowledge as an academic concept, and we have to see this. Boy, do we reform types who like our knowledge have to see this. It's not theological abstraction. Paul does this thing here that's weird. Nowhere else in Greek do we see the term learned connected to a person. You learn a text. You learn a concept. You don't learn a person. I think what Paul is doing here is he's he's leveraging that knowledge of Christ makes up so much more of our faith than an intellectual knowledge of theology. But actually knowing Jesus as a real person, not as an abstraction, is what truly pushes us against the old walk of the world and the devil and the flesh. We see this all throughout the gospel, particularly the gospel of John, I think, Uh, John pits like seeing and understanding and seeing and knowing against one another. Particularly in the first part of that, of the Gospel of John, we see this with the disciples over and over again. It's very important because I think this is the distinction between the Gospel and to make big broad statements that are going to get me in trouble, any other religion. Because no matter what you've been told or what you've learned, Christianity is not about following a set of rules and principles that are outlined for us in doctrine. That's not what it is. It is about knowing Jesus Christ, following him, the real living God who has saved us from the world, the devil, and the flesh. Everything else flows from that relationship. Our doctrine flows from that relationship. Our understanding of how we should live flows from that relationship. But that relationship, that understanding, that knowledge of him comes first. And it's in light of that that Paul urges us to walk worthily. And with that in mind, it's a big caveat. He tells us what the process looks like to walk in this new way. Verse 22 and 24, he offers us instruction. What this looks like. With another one of those statements we talked about last couple of weeks, with this outer phrase, sandwiching an inner phrase. Outside is 22 and 24, if you take out 23. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then inside, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. These are two connected but separate ideas. And the interaction of these two statements, I think, is really important. It's 
It's wrapped up in tricky grammar that he uses and illustrates what it actually looks like for us to stop walking as we once did and start walking with Jesus Christ. The first issue is actually really hard to get to in English. Um, We could talk for a long time about tenses and aspects in the Greek. It's really, I mean, it's hard. It's like rap. The English language doesn't do what the Greek, what Greek does here. But it kind of has to do with verb tense, and I'll talk about verb tense because we understand that. In 22 and 24, Paul pictures the growth as putting off a new self, an old self and putting on a new self. And it actually connects to a passage in Colossians 3. Um, I'm going to read, well, I'm not going to read. But the difference between Colossians 3 is Colossians 3 uses the term put to death. So here Paul says put off, there it says put to death, strong language. There's a lot of like kind of theological debate about what's actually happening here. Has this happened? Is this happening? Will it happen? What's the timeline for putting on and putting off? And the Greek uses what we call the aorist tense. It's a very basic, the very basic understanding of it is it's something that kind of like the past perfect in English. It's been done, it's over, it's completed. We look at it as one whole thing. And he says, you put off your old self. As if this is a spiritual costume change. Or this is tossing off the old vans in favor of the new properly fitting ones. It's happened, it's done in Jesus Christ, full stop. It's the way most commentators and preachers, particularly in our tradition, translate this. And all that's coming after the you will taught means that what we know is that the old self has been put off and the new self has been put on. But there's actually some tension with that in the way that we translate the second part, 23, because that's not the heiress, it's the imperfect. And the imperfect in English is viewed as a past and possibly continuing event. The translation here, to be renewed, tries to get at that. Setting up a tension between what is done and what is being done. It gets way more complicated when we bring aspect into the conversation, but again, we can, that can be a lobby conversation if you want. So when we look at this back and forth grammar between done and being done, done and being done, we get some tension, don't we? Is it an ongoing thing or is it an instant thing? And ultimately, it's both. This action, this taking off the old self, the dead sin of Adam, And putting on the new self, the new living Adam, Jesus Christ, this renewal sits in tension between an already event of gaining this new life and the not yet event of putting it on fully. We are new and we are becoming new. 
the shoes are here. I mean, sometimes I still wear the old ones, even though they kind of hurt. And this tension is important because as we engage in this renewal, we have to keep in our view the truth that one, we are completely new people in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is done and you own that. But two, we are continually seeing the truth of that actualized in our life. So you can rest in the truth that you are new and there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And you can struggle in the reality that you are growing from an infant into maturity. The second tension here is easier in English. Well, the Greek does have some subtleties that again, I won't dwell on. It's grammar again. And it's that part of grammar that every English teacher dreads teaching their students and every student glazes over. Voice, what even is that? Well, in verse 22 and 24, they're translated very well into the active voice in English. And the active voice is when the subject of a sentence does the verb. They say, put on and put off. You put on, put on off the old self and put on the new self. The action done by the subject, Paul speaks to us to put off and put on. But then verse 23 is translated also well to the passive voice in English, and it says, to be renewed. And the passive voice is when the subject has the action done to it. So in 22 and 24, he says, put off the old self. Put on the new self, but right in the middle, he says, and be renewed by something else. And man, that highlights the tension of this life that we live. The tension of sanctification, of our growth from the people, the old dead people that we were to the new alive self that we are. Who does the work? Is changing the way that we walk? Is this about us working up a sweat and marching down the road in a worthy way? Or is it about allowing the Spirit to carry us? That old meme of the old guy falling up the escalator. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And of course, I think the second is right. That's the reformed position, especially with us young guys, you know, the ones who want everyone to stop being legalistic and just get on with life. Listen, I lean into the passive voice. I do most of what you'll hear me talk about is passive, partially because I think it's dominant in Scripture, but also because Paul speaks to his people and I speak to my people and I was born, raised, and brought to ministry in a conservative church that generally is more of a legalistic flesh than an antinomian flesh. And so I speak to my people. But this tension suggests that actually 
This journey is about how we are carried and about how we, are, how we walk, and neither of them can be fully ignored. Yes, we have to understand that this is all by grace. We are saved by grace, and salvation includes the whole pot justification. We are seen as holy, righteous, and just based on Jesus's imputed righteousness. We get credit for what he did. It's all of grace. And sanctification too, how we are progressively made holy, righteous, and just based on what we call Jesus' imparted righteousness as we are grown up into him. Even our regeneration, our ability to see God's call in our life, we believe it's by grace. All of this is by grace. It's all the work of God. But at the same time, and we hold this theologically too, we're called to do something. We're called to act, to strive, to struggle, to participate in our growth, to grow in the good works that we were called to. So that our new selves, those fancy new shoes, they're gifted to us. They remain a gift from the day we get them till the very end. But we have to put them on. And you do have a role in this. You do get to work at this, to struggle along the Spirit to become the men and women that you are called to be in Christ. And that language of putting to death in Colossians 3 adds something important to this idea. It speaks to some old spiritual concepts we don't hear in the church as much anymore, but we call them uh, mortification and vivification. And they're terms we should remember. This lifelong practice of putting to death our old self, of mortifying sin, and of bringing to life the new self, vivification. If we were to remember those words and understand the doctrine behind them as the doctrine of grace, we might understand this relationship between what God has done and what God calls us to. the consequences of what we're called to in this life. No, what your works and what you do and your success or failure at mortification and vivification, your success or failure at walking this road, they have no bearing on your salvation. You're not judged or measured or valued based on your efforts. And even your best efforts in this life are flawed. They're like filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. But it doesn't make them inconsequential. In fact, mortification and vivification, those works that we're called to, are good signs of the Spirit's work in our life. And just as it's God's design, as we talked about the last couple weeks, for you to grow in maturity in a community, it is his design that you come to maturity partially by learning to struggle alongside his grace. The shoes are in the box, clean laces spilling out onto the floor. Put them on. 
even as you remember that even those efforts to put those shoes on are given to you as the Spirit renews you. I think it's the uniqueness of the struggle that's so important to our faith. You are called to do something, to walk in a new way, to live in a new way. But the ability and even the drive to do this, it always comes from him. It always grows as you are transformed, as you are renewed. The spirit of your minds, changing your motivations and your wills. Transformed by the spirit. So do we struggle to put on the old and put off, sorry, to put off the old and put on the new? Do we struggle against sin for holiness and righteousness and justice? Or does the love of God and the grace of Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit create all this in us? Well, the answer is yes. It's yes. It's both. And yeah, that's a frustrating answer. More tension more frustrating religious mystery about how these things interact with one another. I get it, I wrestle with it every day. Well, some days I don't wrestle with it and those aren't my good days. Some days I'm really happy to do the work, ready to be the best me that I can be. And some days I'm just happy to be carried along. And I don't think I ever really get it. When I'm striving to put on and put off, I'm usually doing that in my own pride. And darn it, that's the old flesh at work in me again. That feudal mind. And when I'm letting the spirit work in me, it's usually my laziness. And there's the old flesh again. The old callous will. I don't do well with the tension. I generally swing like a pendulum between the two. I need help just to understand what it means to struggle and I need help to understand what it means to receive grace. And that, brothers and sisters, is where this tension between the already and not yet that we struggle with and between the active and passive growth that we can't seem to reconcile, it's where this tension draws us back to Jesus Christ. The second way that I want to look at this question is by looking at how both our passive renewal and our active putting off and putting on are all accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. What is it that we're being told to put on? Are we putting off specific sins? I mean, surely we are. This is how Colossians walks through this idea and where Paul's going to go in our next passage. But here, that's not what we're doing We're taking off the old self. We're taking off the old dead flesh of Adam and we're putting on the new person of Christ. And Paul, this is weird what Paul does here as well. See, this putting on and taking off was actually a very common uh, Greek picture of morality. People were told to put off their vices and put on virtues. So you put off hatred and you put on love. But what you put off and put on are always these external characteristics. And this is where my shoe illustration falls apart. It would have been great for Hellenistic ethics. But no one ever talked about putting off your whole self and putting on a new person. 
Paul is telling us the center of how we actively struggle, what it actually looks like to do that work is not to put your finger on particular things, but to lean into your identity in Jesus Christ. I can tell you all day to be generous and honest and patient. I can tell you over and over again to avoid sexual sin, but that's not going to do anything. You can't put on morality over your futile and callous self. But if your struggle is to walk in Jesus Christ, to walk in him, where generosity and honesty and patience and purity are all that there is, That's where we do the work. Why are most of, actually all of, the valid spiritual disciplines that the church has developed through the years centering on knowing Jesus Christ? Like, what are we called to do? We read his word. We sit under his preaching. We participate in the sacraments. We pray in his name. We fellowship with his body. Because the things that empower us well are the things that put us in contact with Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we're called to work at. And that's who we're called to work in. And what about our renewal? I mean, we aren't given grace to be more awesome people. We're not empowered by the Spirit here to our own glory. We are renewed in our mindset from those that were separated from God to ones created in his likeness, ones that reflect Jesus Christ himself. Listen, if you desire to grow from infants to mature adults, to walk this new and worthy path, you cannot do this without focusing your hearts and your minds on Jesus Christ. You must take off your old self and put on him. If you want to be renewed, to be empowered by his spirit, you can't do this without focusing your hearts and minds on Jesus Christ. You must be renewed in him. not in anything else, in Jesus Christ. You work in Christ. You're renewed by Christ. This is the whole story. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that we say no to our old ways and walk anew with him and it's in Christ and in Christ alone that we reject the world and the devil and the flesh and walk in his power and it's in Christ and it's in Christ alone that we are recreated in the image of God in his righteousness and holiness let's pray Heavenly Father I thank you for your grace I thank you for your love 
I thank you that you have not left us in our old self, in the old flesh, under these old powers, but you have sent your son to rescue us, to redeem us, and to lead us to a new path. We pray, God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would walk more and more in your grace for the sake of your glory and your kingdom in the name of your Son. Amen.